Hello, good afternoon, good evening from a surprisingly wet Sydney, Australia. Um, it is Friday our time in Sydney, Australia, the 28th of March, 2014. March is nearly over. It is episode 36 of the Ipsa Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to tech, social media, websites, e-commerce, um, you name it. And at the end of my Skype line, I have the 89N, the Managed Flitter co-founder, James Peter. James, hello from Canada, Vancouver. Yep, it's uh, surprisingly not wet here for once. <laughs> We've <laughs> we swapped. We've non-raining days. Yeah, we have, yeah. And and you, of course, are Thursday. You, you're living in the past at the moment. Yeah, we're still in the past here in Canada, so waiting, waiting for Friday. Um, we've got a great show lined up for you. We've had a little bit of a break um, due to, you know, you, you're listening to a podcast by a real coal-facing, bootstrapped startup sometimes. We literally just run out of time. Um, I was away in, in Japan exploring some opportunities for a while, and uh, we have some um, moving offices, which is a is an issue. So, so James, the, our listeners are getting a little bit of an insight into the, the ups and downs of a crazy bootstrap company. Yeah, it can be uh, a little bit of a challenge uh, to get everything working. But um, we manage mostly. We're normally pretty good. Most of the podcasts come out on time, which is probably a, it's probably more of a surprise than anything. We've been we've been uh, we've been pretty good, but uh, I am I am committed to every two weeks. So check your iTunes every two weeks. Subscribe on iTunes. You can listen on the website, comment on the website, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, tweet us. We love getting your emails. Podcast at it's a monkey. Com. We'll give you a shout out. If you want to be interviewed, drop us a line. Speaking of interviews, um, later on in the podcast, we interview Pete Williams, who uh, is part of an interesting internal um, group at Deloitte. And we talk to him about everything relating to tech in Australia and Bitcoin. And he's one of these, um, you know, tech um, futurists, commentators, and uh, we had an interesting chat with him. But as usual, we, we kick it off with the news. James, as always, tons of stuff going on. Um, just a little local story to kick it off, that a Sydney real estate agent begins accepting Bitcoin. A 115-year-old real estate agency on the North Shore of Sydney said it's looking to offer Bitcoin as another avenue for online payment to the influx of international investors and expats entering the prominent Sydney market. Of course, the Sydney property market um, has a huge influx of Chinese investors. Um, wealthy Chinese entrepreneurs are coming and buying a lot of property in Sydney. So uh, um, he says, um, the managing director of this agency says, prior to launching, we had discussions with our financial division who outlined the risks and opportunities of Bitcoin and we were happy with our findings, he said. But a director of another real estate agency is not convinced. He says, I must tell you, I'm very concerned about the Bitcoin situation. I just don't need to deal with those virtual currencies and I don't need the grief. Sounds like, a, <laughs> sounds like the cries of an entrepreneur and a business owner that's just got enough on his place. Um, so, yeah, look, another, uh, another sort of, um, you know, um, indication that, that cryptocurrencies um, are on the way in. So were they uh, accepting Bitcoin to actually buy properties, like the entire purchase price? Um, let's see. He had become a strong supporter of the Bitcoin economy recently as it allowed overseas transactions with less fees and exchange rate fluctuations. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, when I, when I moved to Canada as well, I was kind of exploring Bitcoin as an opportunity to possibly transfer currency um, at a lower price. Um, so, yeah, we, we had similar things that we were looking at. And, and yeah, I concluded then that it, um, um, certainly for, for large volumes, it's probably actually much more uh, cost effective to do transfers through Bitcoin. You can imagine some of the premium properties in Sydney. I mean, they, they you know, 10, 25, 35 million. If you can save a small percentage on exchange rates, that's a nice chunk of change. Yeah, it's a huge chunk. Yeah, yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, they obviously open themselves up to the risk of um, the fluctuations. You know, this stuff doesn't take, if it's such large volumes, it's not going to take a short amount of time to transfer that large volume of currency in Bitcoin. Um, um, well, I, I guess providing you got the right, um, providing you got the right uh, place to actually purchase a Bitcoin, it'd be relatively fast. Um, but yeah, you're obviously exposed for a short period of time to the to the fluctuations in the exchange rate. But 
yeah, it's cool. It's a good idea. I just saw that um, just this morning, actually, you might not have seen it, that um, Stripe's now accepting Bitcoin, or at least doing their their initial rollout of Bitcoin. Um, was, so Stripe's one, yeah, that, that one was, of the sort of forefront payment providers. That was um, that was bound to happen, and uh, I think Braintree, who we use on on Manage Flutter. I was at a talk by the CTO of Braintree in Sydney um, a while ago, and someone asked that question about Bitcoin, and he he um, coyly said we can neither confirm or deny that that Bitcoin is going to be integrated into the Braintree platform. So no doubt um, it will follow. So um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, obviously, if um, if the cryptocurrencies do become you know the currency of the internet, then it makes sense for the payment providers to be in on that game because you know don't want them to lose out. So you know because that is currently their their market is accepting you know payments online, you know Stripe and obviously Braintree. So if they don't um, stay ahead of the game with Bitcoin, they're going to be overtaken by the providers. So it makes a lot of sense them to to uh, at least hedge their bets and, and do it. And um, yeah, at least in Stripe's case, it sounds like they're doing it uh, very efficiently. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see when that rolls out interesting to see um actually i wonder if it was the stripe talk that i went to in sydney i get confused between stripe and braintree i don't know if you remember if that talk that i went to i said i mentioned i was going to the cto i don't know if it was stripe or braintree might have even been stripe i might have got them confused um anyway it doesn't matter um interesting it'll be interesting to see what happens with paypal i mean paypal i would imagine you know, should be all over the the cryptocurrency situation as well, because of course they they try to fill the gap of all the anomalies and the um, y- you know problems with trying to convert the real world transactions into the online transactions. You'd hope so, although um, I mean I, I think it seems like these days PayPal is more kind of like the banks. You know, it's kind of the institution and it's slow moving and. Um, it seems like it will take them a while. I mean, I'm sure they'd be faster than other other providers and the banks to actually take this stuff on. But um, yeah, I would imagine it's going to take them a while. And they do own um, Braintree now, so it's possible that um, they might just just leave Braintree to do that for them and um, see how it picks up. Of course, the banks should be all over this, but that's um, I think they always have so many internal challenges themselves that um, they they're going to miss the boat on this one. So. Anyway, that's Bitcoin cryptocurrency is always interesting developments. And of course, Dogecoin, which co-founder Jackson Palmer, who we spoke to on one of the previous podcasts, you can look at it's a monkey.com, um, is going gangbusters. It actually has more transactions per day than uh, Bitcoin does. It's the leading number of transactions per day. Um, so Dogecoin is going great guns. And uh, Jackson Palmer said he's refused many times investment into Dogecoin. He wants to keep it a community um, exercise, which is quite interesting. So maybe we'll we'll have a chat to him again. I think he's moving to San Francisco. He s- still works full time for Adobe. So uh, cryptocurrency is interesting. It's very very early days. It almost feels like um, the early days of the internet once again, where people are just there's naysayers and there's you know people that claim the world's going to be changed for the better forever, and it's a, a whole new open platform that's emerging. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's. Uh still going strong so james let's talk about uh, microsoft we don't actually talk about microsoft all that much but i want to talk about microsoft they announced that they releasing an office for ipad version which is both interesting because uh, actually releasing a mac specialist product is interesting politically um and um, a lot of people have been wanted a a microsoft um, office for ipad product so that's um that's that's sort of on its way. I think it's going to be a subscription-based only. Am I correct in saying? Uh, so it comes kind of bundled with Microsoft's online offering. So it's the 365 subscription, which is their kind of online services uh, version where you can basically get uh, Office on the web. Um, so I believe it comes free with that. Um, but you can also download it and use it for free on the iPad uh, without having a subscription if you just want to read um, or, in the case of PowerPoint, create presenta- uh, show presentations. So um, if you're not actually editing on it, um, then, it's, then it's actually free. Um, and there is actually already um, an Office version for the iPhone, um, but that one was entirely paid. Um, but it sounds like they're now making that one free for reading as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting move by them to expand into the iPad. Long time coming. 
I can't get into the whole iPad thing. I just, um, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just, you know, I'm just so old school. It's just so entrenched. I just, I can't, my mind just doesn't, can't think properly when I'm on an iPad. It's, I still need to be in front of a screen with a full keyboard. It's still just, you know, maybe I'm just not used to it. Yeah, I mean, I occasionally use um, use the iPad we have. I mean, I mostly use it for flights, to be honest. That's the main time it comes in really handy because it's you know when you're in a small space and you've got a um, and you've got to uh, and you want to sort of be entertained or do some work in that kind of that kind of environment that it works really well. But um, yeah, for me personally, outside of that, I don't. Um, you know, I'm I'm just happy to use sort of modern laptops. are so light and easily transportable that um, you know for me that that's totally fine. But, um, yeah, I'm sure they can be useful for some people. You know, the interesting thing, I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit about Microsoft. Um, you know, it's, it, doesn't have the, it hasn't had the cool kid badge for a long, long time. But um, it's revenue, it's turnover. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if people realize um, how vast, how big their revenue numbers are and their revenue growth is. I mean, in 2012, they turned over $74 billion dollars. In 2013, $77 billion, right? So now they increased their turnover $3 billion. Facebook's total turnover is $7 billion. So just, just their growth alone is, is almost half of Facebook's total revenue. Now, obviously, Facebook's a much newer company, but you know Microsoft's on track to turn over $100 billion this year. Now... If anyone's ever tried to start a company or be involved in a company, you know it's easy to say a hundred billion dollars, uh, you know, on this podcast. But but that that is, I mean, a hundred billion dollars, a hundred, um, you know, a hundred thousand million dollars is is a, a huge amount of money. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, they're still doing surprisingly well and um, still hanging in there despite all their. Um they're, at least in the consumer space, perceived uh, problems, but in the business space, they still just completely own it. So, Headcount yeah. of 99,000, nearly 100,000 staff. Their list of countries, basically they have every single country. I mean, they've got offices in Oman, Pakistan, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Venezuela, Zimbabwe. I mean, there can't be too many multinationals that have uh, an office in, in an unstable place like that. Costa Rica, Croatia. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, they... The, the last life is on them uh, when you look at revenue numbers. So um, that's, uh, that's Microsoft. Um, actually, just, just popped into my head as well. Microsoft XP is uh, this week is coming to an end, I think. Support for Microsoft XP. Um, Microsoft are saying that they will no longer support Microsoft XP. So if you're sitting on XP, you should probably upgrade to Windows 7 or Windows 8 or OS, Mac OS. Yeah, or Linux. <laughs> or Linux. You probably really shouldn't be on XP. <laughs> I don't know if you should put your grandmother on Linux, though. No, that might be a bit challenge. Even I wouldn't use Linux these days, so... <laughs> uh, although, uh, if, if your grandmother use, uh, uses Linux, we want to talk to her. <laughs> there must be a grandmother using Linux somewhere. There's a, there's a 90-something lady in New York that tweets out, and uh, her tweets are fantastic. I'm actually going to try reach out to her, see if we can get her on the show. Um, she's, she seems like a real character, really switched-on modern woman. Um, anyway, uh, big story this week. It seems like every week or every second week or every third week, Facebook makes an acquisition, and of course, Facebook bought Oculus Rift. And we spoke about Oculus Rift a few weeks ago. Um, tell us a little bit. Just remind us, James, uh, Oculus Rift. What's it all about? Um, so the the Rift is basically um, it's kind of like um, virtual reality in the modern day. So it's kind of uh, you know in the early, I guess it was in the early. 90s to 2000, millennium, that kind of stuff, we saw a lot of uh, virtual reality technology come out, um, but none of it really hit the mainstream, um, possibly because a lot of the, um, the computers back then were too slow to kind of process things efficiently and the fidelity of the image wasn't really enough to become kind of uh, uh, really inside the experience. Uh, like uh, It really wasn't uh, good enough to make it feel as if you were there. 
Um, whereas kind of Oculus Rift is uh, an attempt to kind of do the same thing, but with modern technology. So basically you get a, a set of goggles, they sit on your head, um, and you get some speakers, and you kind of uh, become immersed in a virtual world. Um, and it's stereo vision, so you get the depth of the, of the vision. Um, and the idea is, is that you're supposed to kind of feel like you really are in another place. Um, and so if you move your head, then the world, then, then you're kind of looking around and seeing the world around you. Um, so yeah, it's kind of the, the latest attempt at, um, at virtual reality. And yeah, it's, it's had a lot of, a lot of traction, a lot of attention from the press, um, and from, you know, the, the development community. Um, and it was originally but, a Kickstarter campaign or the, or, or the Kickstarter campaign really got it going after some initial prototyping. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, so it um, yeah it got a, a huge um, huge boost through Kickstarter. I think it's actually one of the earlier Kickstarter products too. So it's kind of like one of the the flagship products that they kind of rolled out a lot, as showing you know how awesome Kickstarter was. Um, so yeah, that that worked really well for them. But um, yeah, they still haven't really got a commercial product, and there still isn't a lot of um, uh, software for the product, um, which is what makes this this purchase via Facebook really interesting. Um, it's incredibly speculative, um, and and yeah, I mean, I think it's. I don't think it's necessarily a bad purchase, but um, but it's interesting that it's unlike you know Snapchat, where um, wait, it was Snapchat. No, what did they buy? Instagram and WhatsApp. Instagram, sorry, and WhatsApp. You know, unlike those that have you know, you know huge numbers of users and are dominating the marketplace, that definitely isn't the case with Oculus Rift. It's um, it's still much more about the tech, and it definitely hasn't got any kind of adoption at this stage. Um, well, let, let, let's look at the actual deal. I mean, they, um, you know, they said they'd buy it for $2 billion, but they actually only spent $400 million in cash, and the rest was in shares with, a, with an, with an earn-out um, earn component of it. Facebook's sitting on about, apparently, about $12 billion worth of cash. So for them, $400 million in cash is... You know, it's not betting the farm at all. Um, paying when shares really doesn't cost them much. Their share price is high at the moment. So it's a relatively risk-free purchase, even though it's a bit, uh, quite speculative. And a lot of commentators, including Ian McDonald, who we've had on the show before, and he's the founder of Razorfish in Sydney. He wrote a blog post saying it's just, it's just a ridiculous purchase. Um, you can Google that. It's quite an interesting read. And um, But... You know, they don't have much to lose. If it fizzles, well, it fizzles. I mean, Google has taken punts on many, many products, and you just need one of them, like YouTube, to, to just really, um, you know, get traction and, 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 and um, evolve. And, um, you know, it almost makes all the other acquisitions worth it. So um, they, they're not as crazy as they seem. No. And look, I mean, in some ways, you know, Facebook's got a pretty good track record with these acquisitions as well. Um, it's not like many other companies um, that seem to acquire, then 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 abuse and then kill <laughs> the their acquisitions. You know, Facebook seems to do pretty well at kind of keeping a very hands-off approach um, and letting the company succeed uh, within their their ecosystem. So, yeah, I think it's actually quite a good thing. I mean, I was very um, you know I was quite excited for this technology anyway. Um, and um, and I think this probably made me slightly more excited. It's kind of gone from being sort of a, a backyard project to something that's got you know deep deep pockets to to keep it going. Um, and yeah, I think I think that's quite exciting. And obviously, it's very long play as well. I mean, it's um, um, you know it's kind of arguably Facebook's play against Google Glass as well um, in a very different way. But um, but but you know these things are both. Um, heading in the same direction in, in many ways. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see what the future will bring there. I think virtual reality is the type of thing, if it, if, if it really finds its, um, finds its way, could be incredibly interesting and could, re could really be disruptive. But it's, it's still one of those technologies like artificial intelligence or, um, you know, or, or that, that just... That just has been bubbling around and been and been and there's been a lot of promise for a long time, but just quite hasn't gotten there. I mean, it's not a new technology; it's been around for a long time, right? Yeah, that, that's true. I think the main difference between it and a lot of other speculative technologies is you can, you know, we kind of know how to do this stuff, and it's not a it's not a theoretical problem. It's not solving like you know 
things that we don't really know how to do. It's, you know, things we do know how to do. It's just we haven't been able to make um, fast enough computers, good enough screens, you know, comfortable enough devices, things people actually want to wear. So, you know, these things are kind of, um, they're more just um, real world problems, you know, just implementation problems rather than, rather than abstract problems. So, um, yeah, I, I can, you know, I, I, have, I have much more faith in this than, um, than, than, you know, AI or that, that kind of stuff coming, coming into fruition. I agree with Ian though that the headsets is a major issue. Um, it's you know it's fine for for the geeky people of the world that love dabbling with these things, but for mainstream adoption, you know to to move beyond a, a, a specialist technology. Sure, maybe if a surgeon is learning how to um, perform a delicate operation, sure he'll whack on a virtual reality headset and go right in. Then it's fantastic. But in terms of you know, a Facebook type situation where your mom and pop and your grandmother uses it. Um, I'm more bullish on, on, you know, virtual worlds that you step into, whether they're holographic or even a room. You know, when I was very young, I went in a, a, a Boeing flight simulator that was landing and that had a whole different feel to it. You know, it really felt like you were in a cockpit that was landing. That was really fantastic. It, 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 was, it was so real. That um, that was you know and this this was um, this was in the eighties this was a long time ago so even that technology I would imagine has improved a lot so I think for virtual reality to get mainstream adoption it's, we have to move beyond that headset I, I agree and we agree with Ian McDonald on that side of things yeah look I think it'll keep getting better I mean in some ways it's kind of like you know the first laptop you know it wasn't really an incredibly practical thing you know or even the first mobile phone right you know it was a um, you know, the first mobile phone did a lot for you, but it was kind of like, you know, literally carrying around a brick, both the size and the weight of those things. Um, and, you know, it took a long time until we got something that's, you know, comfortable and uh, incredibly useful. And, you know, these modern smartphones are absolutely nothing like the the first mobile phones. Um, but, yeah, I'm sure we'll get there. I'm sure we'll get to something that's, you know, becomes cool and that people, you know, actually, you know, becomes more of a status symbol than a than a than something you don't really want to put on so i, I think we'll get there interesting times well hopefully my my little tiny um stake in facebook you know i'm exposed to all their craziness um, speaking of which as well we're nearly at the end of march which means that google's share price will be splitting in two soon um so I, I, you know, I always talk uh, how bullish I am about tech stocks, most of them. If you're looking at investing in tech stocks, it might be a good time because Google's share price, I'm not exactly sure where they're at. I think they're about $1,100, so pretty expensive, but they're going to be splitting in half. Still going to be expensive, but you'll be able to at least, um, you know, get a few shares at, at, a, at a cheaper price, and it might be a good time to get in. You know, I think Google's... Uh, as blue chip as they come these days, I, I don't think their revenue is going to um, slip very quickly. So that's just an aside. Cool. Okay, we're going to take a short break. We'll be chatting to Pete Williams from Deloitte's in Sydney. Well, he's actually from a, a tech division in, in Deloitte's, a futuristic, and it's called uh, Edge. They do deal with edge technologies. So um, we'll take a short break and we'll come back and we'll talk to Pete Williams. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk everything about tech, tech economy, technology, startups, social media, you name it. We are in the middle of the most fantastic, interesting industry um, in the world that's so moving so fast that I believe Warren Buffett a few days ago actually said that uh, he can't predict what's going to happen financially wise with all the tech companies because everything just moves so fast. So uh, that, that was an interesting comment. Um, happy to say at the end of my Skype line, um, 
we have Pete Williams. Uh, Pete Williams, of course, has been involved in the Sydney um, online digital space for a long time. He's the founder of Deloitte Digital. Um, he's now the Chief Edge Officer for Deloitte Center for the Edge. Pete, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. No worries. Good to talk to you again, Kevin. Pete, just uh, quickly, did, um, Deloitte Center for the Edge seems really interesting. Just uh, give us a quick overview of what, the, uh, what, what you guys do there. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. We look at um, both the sort of long-term effects of the changes in sort of digital infrastructure and digital penetration and hyper-connectivity, um, as well as in the context of uh, the globalising world. And um, so there's sort of digital and economic liberalisation that have really opened things up for the flow of capital, for the flow of knowledge, for the flow of ideas, for the flow of people. And then we look at then what's happening out there on the edges that organisations and institutions need to be aware of and understand how what's happening and how fast it continues to accelerate may affect them in the future. So it's it's sort of a, it's a future it's sort of like a futurist think tank that looks back for 50 years and then looks forward, um, you know, sort of for 10, I suppose. Is it um, wholly owned by Deloitte? Yeah. So it was a it was an initiative set up in uh, Silicon Valley in the US. So we have. Um, the two chairmen are uh, John Hagel, who's a very well-renowned uh, author and uh, thinker around digital. He he wrote, you know, what I always felt was one of the seminal books on the web back in 1997 called Net Gain. And if you actually read that book today, you look at it and think, gee, this guy's predicted the social web, um, you know, 13 years or whatever before it happened. And John Seely Brown, who was the director of Park Xerox and happens to be on the board of Amazon and um, Corning who make all the glass for the iPhone screens and all that stuff. So a couple of luminaries from there. And um, I, I run the chapter in Australia and we've recently opened a chapter in the Netherlands. So, um, yeah, very much about looking at how things, how, how the digital world's changing, not just from a technology point of view, but really changing the whole way society and the world works. Pete, strange question. I, I've actually heard you talk a couple of times in Sydney, and I believe you're now based in Melbourne. Do you find much of a difference in thinking both in the, the tech startup world and or even in the way corporates adopt digital technologies between Sydney and Melbourne? Um, it, it's sort of interesting. I, I find, you know, I, I'm, I'm a sort of Melbourne-born and bred guy and uh, have worked extensively in Sydney because when I was running um, Eclipse, which then became Deloitte Digital, et cetera, I was generally up in Sydney two hours a week. I, I find that um, there's a bit more of a communal feel down in Melbourne. Um, and uh, the, and, and perhaps, I don't know, and again, this might be bias, but um, yeah, I do feel that they're, you know, I often find it's easier to get things done in Melbourne in the digital space. I spend a lot of time in Melbourne, got a lot of friends in Melbourne, and there's definitely something communal going on in Melbourne that doesn't happen in Sydney. I can't quite put my finger on it, but um, there's a different sensibility that does happen then. And uh, I, I can say that because I, I, I love Sydney, um, but uh, Melbourne's definitely got something interesting happening. So it's interesting you say that about the community feel. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it's a very... It's a very sort of tight community here. And, you know, it's interesting in Melbourne, a lot of stuff happens in the streets because you sort of walk out the door and you know, every time I walk out the door, there's some sort of startup CEO. Well, I'm a smoker, so I have the benefit of being able to hang out <laughs> in sort of alleyways and coffee stop shops and stuff. And, yeah, and maybe it's the coffee culture or something. But, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens in um, whether it's the, the cafes or the co-working spaces, um, which are really, you know, really the sort of hubs of innovation down here. And I think there's... You know, things, and maybe if you look at, so I've, I've spent a bit of time at Fishburners and things, maybe a little bit just out of the general hubbub of things. But um, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the, the other interesting thing is we're seeing that most of the internationals have headquartered in Sydney. So, you know, particularly in the sort of social space. So, you know, we've got Google, we've got um, Twitter, um, Facebook, etc. cetera. So, um, but Melbourne has had a lot of the, um, I suppose, more disruptive, uh, startups around things like you know car sales and real estate and all, all those sort of things. So and Seek. So yeah, it's slightly different. But um, you know, I think um, you know I think both scenes are really starting to kick up more recently. And um, yeah, there's just a lot of exciting stuff I'm seeing out there. And I mean, the thing I'm probably most excited about at the moment is the maker movement. 
um, you know, so things like LifeX and um, Ninja Blocks and Ninja Spheres and um, uh, the quad lock bicycle stuff and all those things. So I'm finding it just sort of as manufacturing is dying in this country from a traditional perspective, we're seeing these sort of magnificent um, new ideas being funded through crowdfunding and taking the world by storm. Do and, you think... Uh, Sorry, go. Yeah, I was going to say, and I tweeted a photo of me wearing an Oculus Rift about 10 days ago, and lo and behold, they sold it for $2 billion. So I don't know whether I can claim that or not, but um, yeah, that's quite an amazing story. You know, a crowdfunding um, platform or, you know, thing that was set up in, I think the offer closed in September 2012, and they raised just under two and a half mil. And, uh, you know, in 18 months later, bang, they've sold it for $2 billion, which is just... Yeah, you know, it's just it's just a sign of how the, the world has changed. You know, I can have an idea, I can prototype it, I can put it out, sense whether there's a demand, um, <clears throat> get people on board, and you know, just sort of rock it to the top. Um, it, it's just quite amazing. The the velocity. I mean, we've got all these tools and enablers that just um, allow for for velocity of of growth, um, success and failures in in the commercial landscape as never before. Just just you, you know, at, at compounded at the you know factor of a thousand like never before. Yeah, and I think whilst you know I'm seeing sort of traditional institutional Australia, whether that be business or government, struggling to to get on board with innovation and prototyping and experimentation and things like that but we're they're actually being shown how it's done and you know that's a classic edge for us it's um you know sort of completely different way of you know idea turned into prototype turned into is there demand for it if yes we go if not well it was a pretty cheap way to fail and um <clears throat> i i just think it's uh, it's fantastic I, i'm a massive fan of lifex as well i i've got lifex globes at home and um they they just they lighten my life. It's uh, there's nothing like you know walking out of the lounge room and turning the light off with your iPhone as opposed to turning the light off and then falling over the coffee table and couch as I walk out. So um, yeah, just um, I just I'm really enjoying this sort of spontaneous innovation, I suppose, um, emerging. What do you think of the ocular of purchase? Uh, Ian McDonald, the the um, co-founder of Razorfish, wrote a piece on his blog yesterday saying it's it's just a a, a crazy um, um, acquisition that is so speculative that it actually doesn't make any sense. But obviously, Mark Zuckerberg feels differently. What, what do you think about the fit with Facebook and and the sense behind the acquisition? Yeah, it's sort of you know my own view would be that you know there hasn't been a lot of disclosed. We actually wrote. Uh, a blog post sent for the edge about um, the value of WhatsApp recently. And, and our view, we, we think that value lies in flow. So historically values like, you know, lay in stock. You know, I have a database of, you know, a million people and that's my stock and I don't share it with it. Whereas now, well, there's a database of hundreds of millions of people on Facebook and it's pretty open or Twitter or whatever, or LinkedIn. And um, so we sort of look at the value in terms of WhatsApp in flow, you know, cause there's no revenue model to it. Um, in terms of where, you know, how does it fit with Facebook and social networking? Well, you know, is this the next sort of move into sort of more virtual world stuff? I mean, I, I was sort of participated on second life for a bit, but I just found, you know, it was like going to a nightclub at eight o'clock in the morning. It was all nice and pretty, but nobody was there. Um, the, um, the, you know, so I'm, I'm not quite sure where it fits with the strategy, but, um, but, but I think I think if, if these crowdfunding things tend to sense demand and crowd excitement and, um, you know, we, we've talked about sort of virtual reality since, you know, the mid 90s and hasn't really gone anywhere. Um, but, you know, it was interesting when I when I tried one on the other day, um, what um, the, it was around um, using Oculus Rift to do walkthroughs of mine sites in the Pilbara. Mm. So, you know, we're seeing it not just for 3D games, but for immersive games, but we're also seeing it for how can I actually create simulated environments or simulated situations using Oculus Rift and some sort of 3D rendering technology. And um, so I, I think the, you know, the, the world's your oyster with something like an Oculus Rift. Um, and, you know, good luck to Facebook for um, having a crack. And, 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 I, and I think it's a, it's a little bit along the lines of, um, you know, we often see these acquisitions and we don't necessarily know where they're going to go, but um, you know, clearly somebody in at Facebook feels that it's a key part of their strategy, and uh, 
it's worth that sort of money. And I, and I, you know, maybe they're saying we're going to make a, a major play into the gaming world, which really, if you think of, you know, casual social gaming, um, you know, with the zingers of the world, et cetera, all through Facebook, you know, we did see this sort of explosion, which has maybe settled a bit, but uh, maybe this is the next uh, wave for social gaming using, you know, immersive 3D headsets. So, yeah. And, you know, ten, you know, what we see with gaming these days, it is as much social as it is, uh, um, you know, around sort of gameplay. So, uh, you know, I think it fits well. Um, I think virtual reality is one of these technologies where the, the promise has been there for a long, long time. And it's, it's one of these technologies that sooner or later... It, it will happen, but when that will be and what is that additional technology that will make it accessible and make it, you know, Ian makes the comment about how no one really wants to put the headset on, no one really wants to put the glasses on. So, you know, maybe maybe it needs that extra step where somehow we can get into the virtual reality world um, with much sort of, uh, you know, more integrated glasses, something like Google Glass or even perhaps without any glasses, holograms or something like that. Yeah, I must admit, well, you know, I don't know whether no one wants to use them. I was pretty keen to use it when I saw it there. You're not the and, typical, you're you know, not the typical, uh, you know, uh, citizen. <laughs> yeah, but, it, but but I think, you know, that I, I found that the context in which it was used around um, induction in a mining site and also simulating what could happen in a, um, in a, a sort of potential high risk area was a bloody great use of it. And, you know, again, you could create simulations and, um <clears throat> let people be immersed in, you know, in, in, in a sort of uh, high-risk environment and, and um, get, you know, you could experience it. So I, I thought from a point of view of learning um, and, uh, you know, it was a great use of it. So, uh, and it's a lot easier to do it with an Oculus Rift than to fly out into the middle of the nowhere in, in the desert in the Pilbara. So, um, yeah, I, I just found that that made a lot more sense to me. And because it was immersive, the only, the only sort of tip I would give to people who use one is don't, use an oculus rift and then go straight into a presentation because i sort of i tried it on then i had to talk and then i felt a bit dizzy but you know sort of a minute after that i was okay but uh no i i was i was very keen because i've um you know i've been interested in this space i mean another one i was involved in um was emotive which is the headset that um reads your electrical impulses in your brain and you can control computers by thinking you know again you know that one's. Uh, I love that one, and um, that's got a Melbourne um, connection, right? The CEO, she's from Melbourne originally. Yeah, so um, it's uh, Tan Lee, uh, Nam Do, and yeah, you know, I actually met those guys oh, 14 years ago. They had a an idea which was a little bit ahead of its time, um, and I sort of said to them, "Well, who, uh, who? You know, that sort of. I think your idea is right, but I just think it's five years ahead of the time, and if you deploy it now, it's not going to be able to get traction." Um, but sort of found said, Oh, who's what's your background? And all of them were um yeah, it was basically, you know, Nam was the I think he won the Olympic gold medal for uh chemistry. Or another guy, Duke, won the Olympic gold or sorry, the silver medal in the Olympics for physics and another Duke won uh, one for maths. And I'm like and Tan Lee was the young Australian of the year. I'm like, well, okay, we uh might not you might not have had the right idea right on this one, but shit, with that sort of talent, um, you know, we could go anywhere. So uh, yeah, and I, I sort of helped them out with a little bit of, um, just I just actually lent them some money to get going. I didn't want any equity, and I just wanted to see them succeed. So, got them going a bit, and um, you know, kept involved with them and helped them when they raised some of their initial um, angel funding and stuff. So, uh, no, really good to see that they've gone forward with it. Pete, you, you mentioned, um, you know, Australia's manufacturing really um, dying, which, is, you know, a lot of the car companies have, have closed or will be closing. I mean, how do you feel about Australia not rising to the occasion of reinventing itself, um, for, you know, as a knowledge-based economy? And I mean, it is very much a service-based economy, but have we really done as much as we could to take some of the super normal profits from the mining industry knowing that um, that's got to use by date and actually you know harnessing or channeling our brain power creating ecosystems there still seem to be missing components we still haven't had those exits i mean atlassian is going to list but it's going to list on the the london stock exchange so you know some of the benefits won't flow through uh, have we missed an opportunity? Is it too late? Is there still opportunity to perhaps turn us into something, um, you, you know, more sustainable than mining? Yeah, look, I um, we just um, actually released um, the Australian Shift Index. So our colleagues in the US at Centre for the Edge 
had been um, had been running a shift index since about 2009, and we actually ran it. So we look at three levels. One is what we call the foundation. So that is um, sort of digital infrastructure availability and penetration and um, economic policy. We look at flow, participation in um, sort of social media and you know information flow, inside and outside firms. We look at um, things like uh, capital flows, and then we look at the impact it has in terms of stock market returns and da 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 da, da um, returns to talent and stuff like that. And the, the the interesting thing was Australia is adapting to the shift much better than the US. So if you look at our economy, the the move to a knowledge based service economy happened a long time ago. Um, right. So I think something like about eighty one percent of our economy is. Um, what we would call a service-based economy. And in terms of the percentage of knowledge workers or creative people in our economy, I think we, we rate fourth according to the Richard Florida stats. So I actually think that, um, you know, the last vestiges of traditional manufacturing sort of moving, um, you know, closing their doors, having been supported often by, um, you know, propped up by, uh, you know, government funding and stuff is, you know, it's sort of like sad, but it's like, you know, my view is that probably was propped up longer than it needed to be. So, so what what we've said is that we actually think um, Australia's in a bloody good position. Um, we've got, you know, overall in terms of economic freedom, we rate number three in the world. Um, so, our the ability of you know capital flow, openness of markets, and all that sort of stuff is uh, we're very well positioned, and we've had a long history of government reform, really going back to the Hawke and Keating era, and and continued through more um, flavours of government. Um, the other one that we're seeing is that Australian individuals are adopting technology as fast as anybody in the world, just about. And um, they, you know, so things like in some industries, like say banking, where more than 50% of connections to banks now comes from mobile devices, we're really rocketing ahead. So, you know, what our um, what our, our sort of take on this is that um, organisations and institutions could really tap into the capacity of individuals as knowledge workers who can absorb technology like sponges and we often see our organizations and institutions absorb technology as i say like bricks um you know how do you actually tap into these knowledge workers how do you move away from trying to be more efficient to be much more about rapid learning how do you you know how do you sort of start to say well you know if we, if we take a LifeX or whatever it's like well hey you know we do the design here we do the promotion the marketing here you know it's contract manufactured in Shenzhen, logistics are handled by Hong Kong Post. So we can tap into these ecosystems. And I think the connectivity of Australians um, is huge. So we're, our economy is getting a lot more competitive than it was, but it's still a lot less competitive due to, um, you know, sort of tyrannies of distance and stuff than it used to be. Uh, that, or then, then we, it's less competitive than, say, we'd see in markets like the US or Europe. But um, so, you know, we'd actually say we're in a pretty good position but the opportunity for our institutions is to say well you know we've got all these sort of fast adopting smart individuals um and if let's stop focusing on trying to make everything sort of you know more and more efficient to being more and more innovative and and i think that shift tends to lag but we're seeing you know we're seeing stuff on the edges where you know this explosion of innovation is happening i mean one of the ones that we we feel is massively underdone in australia is people sort of opening their APIs and building communities, development communities around them. And you know, I've been talking a lot about Credit Agricole in um, France, who've created a bank who's opened their APIs and created an app store. And I think they've got about 80 apps there now or something. But you look at that and say, well, you know, guys, we, we could be doing this, whether through government, whether through private sector. So there's there's massive opportunities to um, unleash. And um, it's the question is, you know, are our leaders of institutions going to be able to make that shift? Or will it be the sort of emergent um, maker movement and the startup movement that starts to drive the change? And I think, I mean, I, I follow the startup scene in Israel quite a lot. And, you know, they have such a ridiculous amount of exits there and a ridiculous amount of innovation. And I believe we have people here that are just as smart, just as innovative. I think there's a cultural issue with a propensity for risk that is going on. I think I think Australians are, are risk averse due to a variety of factors. But I always think how 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 can we how can we capture or or, or, or just really um, evolve the startup scene? There's no reason why we shouldn't be getting the exits and 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 packaging that innovation um, in a form that 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 we're really optimizing the value. Somehow the value gets a little bit um, a little bit diluted here in bits and pieces. 
Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, there's been a bit of a debate recently um, in the Fairfax Press and Seb Eckersley Martin, Martin from uh, Blue Chile was sort of talking about it as well. You know, we, we just do not have the the sort of availability of capital. And, you know, last time I went to San Francisco, um, you know, you sort of, there were Aussies all over the place. And it was interesting. There were ones I knew. And then there were others ones like, who are you? Never, you know, what, what the hell are you doing here? Um, and it was like, oh, well, I just, you know, thought I'd come here because this is the place to be. And, uh, you know, well, what idea are you working on? I haven't got one. So it was almost like, I, did, I, I sort of, I was a bit amused thinking, you know, God, people without ideas are even going over there now. So, um, but, but I think, you know, there's a couple of, key things that I, I'd like to see. One, I'd like to see equity crowdfunding um, accelerated because, again, it would it would let people stay at home a bit longer. The um, there, you know, we we are seeing sort of more um, more capital from offshore, and you know, whether it's you know sort of the ninety nine design guys and Excel partners or the the mob in Richmond who used to make that flight control game and all that stuff. So we're seeing, I think we're seeing much more regular exits than we used to. You know, sort of. Um, in the you know sort of the pre two thousand era, yeah, we used to see a few big ones there, but um, it was a bit of a bit quiet for a while. But I'm seeing more more attention in Australia, and I think if we um, you know we start to sort of get a bit um, if if there's more available capital that can flow to startups in Australia, I think uh, happy days. But that's where we're seeing things like um, the crowdfunding uh, movement really you know enabling people who historically would have been marching up and down Pitt Street or Collins Street trying to get somebody to back them, being able to test demand and uh, get going without, you know, it's a lot easier these days. And, and I think um, I think Malcolm Turnbull um, is fairly open to um, equity crowdfunding, which, you know, there's just been, there was a discussion release and submissions and all that stuff made. So, you know, we expect to see that. I, I, I don't think that we're seeing any great leadership around open innovation from our corporates, um, which is unfortunate, but um, Combank, you know, sort of us sort of edging towards there, which would be really good if they got that going. Um, I'm, I'm seeing actually some good stuff. I think Telstra has um, done some really good stuff just in terms of how they've, you know, with their 24-7 app and their crowd support stuff and, you know, the, the whole change in customer experience has um, uh, really improved and, you know, starting to set up incubators and stuff like that. So we're, we're slowly seeing it move. And I'm also seeing, um, it's interesting, one of the big moves I've seen in the last 12 months is sort of, uh, you know, clients coming to us and saying, um, can you, you know, we've got this idea, we want to be in the market in 13 weeks, can you do it? And it's like, yes, we can. Thank God we're starting to do it. And and what we find is when organisations are, you know, sort of standing things up that fast, um, it it's often more about politics than technology. And um, But once they've seen how fast they can move, um, you know, it, it hopefully will spread. So this sort of notion, like we did, uh, a small business insurance thing for CGU, and it's actually beautiful. But um, again, you know, the CEO led it and said, "We've got to have this offer, and we need it fast." And you know, it was all sort of cloud-based, and it's it's led by design, and you know, the sort of full design thinking, um, iterative design, agile model, lean lean startup, minimum viable product, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but you know, we're starting. I'm starting to see um, glimpses of corporate Australia starting to really get into. Let's move fast. Let's learn what we do, and um, and it's and it's effectively it, it's it's really it's a lot cheaper and it comes out a lot better than the old traditional approach of let's sort of go through torturous flaming hoops of business cases and market models and sort of you end up you know two years later and a million bucks with some Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoint decks as opposed to you know for half of that we could have had something live in the market and uh, tested and working as we go. So I'm I'm seeing that start to emerge, which is really good. And what's, um, I mean, you've got one eye in the corporate world. I mean, interesting, Dogecoin um, is out of Australia, and that's that's making huge waves. Um, the corporate world, um, they interested, concerned, fascinated, or even aware of cryptocurrencies and the new, I mean, you gave a, a talk recently at AdTech around the future of exchanging values. Are they interested in this this evolving difference and, and, and new way of exchanging values? Um. Yeah, the um, I suppose the the ones I've been talking to, I've, I've spoken to the ATO, I've spoken to ASIC about it. So the regulators are trying to get their heads around it. Um, <clears throat> the in terms of you know the other thing is sort of like if you look at the you know cryptocurrencies, you know God knows how many of them there are, probably a hundred or something, and you know sort of Dogecoin's getting a lot of you know because it's Australian and you know sort of based off a meme. But I look at it and sort of say, well, 
what is it, rated sixth, and it's got a overall capitalization of 39 mil. Bitcoin's got seven mil. So I, I, I basically have no interest in Dogecoin. <laughs> um, now that might piss people off, but I just feel that, yeah, they, they, this is a very dynamic space. And, um, you know, there was a, a, a sort of legal decision handed down yesterday in the US saying that um, cryptocurrencies are not currencies, they're property, which is okay. Um, I saw that, yeah. So effectively, yeah, and then, you know, from, I'm, I'm actually a chartered accountant by background from many years ago. And to me, you know, that makes sense. It's just like any other commodity, whether there's a share or gold or diamonds or whatever. And when you actually convert value into some hard currency, you know, it will be taxable either as a gain or, or non-taxable as a, and deductible as an expense, whatever. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of, and I'm seeing some banks talk about it. We've um, globally within Deloitte, we're, uh, you know, we've got a little group of us who sort of get together. Well, we're seeing a lot, um, a lot of interest from um, the uh, sort of law enforcement agencies. And because, you know, to, you know, let's not kid ourselves, a lot of the um, stuff that's going on in, with, with the sort of cryptocurrencies is money laundering and, um, you know, black economies and all that stuff or currency controlled markets where um, you can't move money, but you can move Bitcoins easily. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's a very interesting space. I think it's also amazingly resilient. So, you know, it's a bit like the old days of the web when, you know, every kid was going to have a nuclear bomb being made in their bedroom. Um, you know, so, oh, you know, the sky's falling in. Oh, Mount Gox has fallen over. That's the end of it. And, uh, you know, so we're sort of seeing it become much more resilient. I do a little bit of work with Coinjar, the um, yep, they're Melbourne -based. Bitcoin exchange here. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, again, you know, we've been talking to them, but, you know, they, they actually comply with things like anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing um, regulations, although they don't have to. Um, you know, so I think what we're starting to see is some of the, the players in this space are saying, well, clearly security and hackability is a massive issue, but also let's, um, let's try and sort of legitimise ourselves as this thing goes along. And, you know, where we are seeing people take take the, you know, Bitcoin as a currency, oftentimes it's as much a marketing ploy as it is, um, you know, as a, um, oh, you know, we, we really think there's a lot of money being going to be paid to us in Bitcoin. But, um, you know, as acceptability increases, I mean, one of the problems with these cryptocurrencies is the volatility. So as, a, you know, what we would say as a store of value, you're taking on a lot of risk if you sort of want to speculate on it. But as an exchange of value, it's actually not that bad if you you know because the cost the ease of exchanging value is um is really where these things come into its own and uh, i think bitcoin sort of in terms of um value exchanged on a daily basis ranks about number eighth of all things in the world so i think it's maybe it's sort of about on par with western union so you know we're, we're starting to see it sort of find its way and, i've got, um, so I've and, got you know, sorry go you know it, the other thing is it's sort of you know the, the other thing is oh you know there's only 21 million of them or whatever, but it's close to what we'd call infinitely divisible. So I think you can go down to eight decimal points. So in terms of sort of running out of a money supply in the future, well, maybe, but, you know, you sort of can trade fragments and all that stuff. So, and it's got all the signs of, a, of an emergent currency, you know, market manipulation, speculation, hoarding, um, and, and these things are always happen, always happen with currencies as they emerge. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing to watch. And, I'm quite lucky because I've got Professor Ian Harper who works with us here and we do a lot around this stuff and um, he knows more about the history of um, value and exchange and he'll talk about Polynesian rocks and <laughs> shells and all that stuff. So and he, so he always comes back to shells. Yeah, but it, it, it's sort of <laughs> when you actually look at it and look at his history, you're seeing a lot of the same things happen. But they, you know, these things will emerge. And my view, whether it's Bitcoin at the moment, You'd say it's probably a winner take most market and Bitcoin has taken most. Um, so I, I do think, yeah, you know, watch this space um, and, and see what you can do with it. I'm looking at some charts of um, cryptocurrencies. Um, Bitcoin's got the highest market cap and Dogecoin is, is fourth of market cap. But in terms of transactions in the last 24 hours, Bitcoin 57,000 and Dogecoin 80,000 transactions. So Dogecoin's actually leads by the number of transactions of, um, because Dogecoin is used on the, 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 the tipping in the tipping world and, and uh, you know, these, yeah. these small um, no, uh, denominations. Um, average transactions per hour, Bitcoin 2,400, Dogecoin 3,300. So uh, Dogecoin 
is uh, really doing interesting things. And the founder of Dogecoin, or one of them who's uh, from Sydney, he's apparently turning down a lot of funding offers and he wants to keep it communal, which is uh, really interesting. So uh, it'll be a really interesting space yeah, to watch. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I, I'm sort of looking at it from a point of view of, well, you know, if I look at, say, volume, you know, it's 16 mil transacted in uh, Bitcoin and what have I got here, 840 in Dogecoin, which is sort of punching above its weight. Um, Litecoin did 9 mil in the last 24 hours. So you're going to see you're going to see these sort of you know and, and and if you look down the list and you know you sort of like oh my god you sort of get to about number 100 and you think uh, um actually i think there might be slightly too many here but um yeah i think it's something to watch and play out but i, I suppose i'm i'm more focused on bitcoin actually i just saw the price i might buy some more um the um, the uh yeah, I just think it's quite interesting. And the other thing is Dogecoin's getting a bit of thing because, again, accessibility is a big thing in any currency. So if it, mm. the acceptability and accessibility of it is um, something that's very important as well because if you know what people want to have in a currency is trust. It needs to be accessible and acceptable. So if nobody accepts it, well, <clears throat> you know, it ain't going to get anywhere. But And again, you know, so transactional volume might be a smart thing to look at and saying, well... Actually, the more people who are transacting with it might sort of tell us, well, this is a good place to be. But then the other issue you'll always get is, will this invite speculators who will then hoard, which then slows down the flow of the currency and, you know, that that sort of creates its own problem. So, but very much a space to watch. Interesting times. Pete Williams, um, really appreciate your time talking to us on the It's a Monkey podcast. You can be found on Twitter at, um, what's your Twitter handle, Pete? Rexter, R-E-X-S-T-E-R. R-E-X. And uh, R-E-X-S-T-E-R. Yeah, so lots of pearls of wisdom and whatever we're publishing and talking about um, I spread through there. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, well, thanks for having me on and um, really good to uh, talk to you again, mate. Uh, appreciate it and we'll stay in touch. Appreciate your time, Pete. Thanks. See you, Kevin. Thanks. Bye. Bye. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. James, that was a bit of a meandering talk, but um, it clearly clearly passionate about the industry you know the tech industry yeah definitely yeah yeah he's got a very unique uh, unique perspective on it all and um yeah no it's a very interesting talk um interesting to discuss you know we we talk a lot about the u.s and uh in many ways managed flitter feels like a u.s company based in australia which is a bit of a we're, we're a little bit uh, multi-personality that way. You know, we incorporated in Australia, but um, our, our peak times are U.S. and our customer service, um, a lot of it's based in the U.S. But we don't really talk all that much about the, diff the nuance between the Sydney and Melbourne ecosystems. But uh, Melbourne's, Melbourne's actually got some terrific uh, startups happening. Uh, yeah, what, um, what have you heard of lately? Coin I guess obviously coin jars from... Melbourne. Coin jar, I think 99 Designs, Melbourne as well. Yep, that's a good point. Um, yep. Sydney's got Atlassian and Campaign Monitor, which are, are two of the poster boys, two of the, the really bootstrapped. You know, Australia's really, really punching above its weight in bootstrapped companies. Um, Atlassian and uh -huh. Campaign Monitor. I mean, Atlassian took some funding and they're going to be listing soon. But, I mean, you know, they were already turning over $100 million or something crazy before they took funding. Um, what else is in Melbourne? I'm sure people will send us a whole slew of um, of, of companies in Melbourne. Have you spent much time in Melbourne? Uh, yeah, I've been there. I've been there quite a few times. I, I, I quite like it. Um, probably a little bit more than Sydney, although I, I much prefer to live in Sydney. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's still a great city. Yeah, it's got it's 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 surprisingly different in feel to Sydney. You know, it's something mm. feels feels quite different there. Their design sensibility is very noticeable. In Sydney, sort of when they build a bridge, they okay, besides the Sydney Harbour Bridge, but any other bridge is just plonk, it's a bridge and it's functional. In Melbourne everything's got a, a lovely design touch. 
and mm. I really like that the bridges and the roads and the buildings and the apartments, they've all got a little design sensibility and an awareness for design. Whereas as Sydney, as Sydney, I, I feel like everything's just about getting shit done so you can go to the beach or the park. The weather's always good. You know, people are just, the, the lifestyle thing just dominates everything here. Whereas in Melbourne, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot broader, a lot more about art and culture. And, um, you know, I guess that, that trickles down into, into some of the, the startups. So, um, but yeah, Pete had some, yeah, some, cool. some really um, interesting comments. He's very bullish on uh, the Oculus Rift and the virtual reality thing. Yeah, it was interesting his comments about um, Australia being, um, you know, quite progressive in terms of being a service economy as well. I hadn't uh, really heard that, but um, yeah, it's an interesting point of view. Not not as far behind as we think it is. No, I don't think it's as bad as we sometimes think it is. But it just, I, I think you need those big exits to to really to really energize the ecosystem. You know, you need you need ten, twenty, thirty um, people that that have disposable cash and want to use that cash to just, you know, inject it into a whole bunch of other startups and those startups exit. And so that flywheel keeps going, you know, that that's what's happened with um, yeah. PayPal and, and, and Google. I mean, the, I mean, you, you know, you take um, Elon Musk's from PayPal, Reed Hoffman's from PayPal, David Sachs of Yammer's from PayPal, you know, so the, uh, so we that that's the one component um, that's missing, but it's definitely not as um, not as bad as as we think it is. And a lot of commentators comment how how Australian startups really um, there's very little fluff. We have to deliver very quickly. You know, most of us are bootstrapped, and that forces you to find value, and you know be lean. And it and you and it's 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 a whole. It's a whole different sort of uh, angle to developing businesses as opposed to the take funding, shoot for the stars, some stuff sticks, stuff doesn't. They're two different metaphors for building businesses and, they, and they're both valuable. But um, um, yeah, to build billion dollar businesses, it's, it's, it's very, very hard to do it bootstrapped. You generally have to spend money before you yeah. make it. But, um, you need the ecosystem. You need the ecosystem. Something yeah. ecosystem. What's happening in Vancouver with the startup scene of you... Uh, um, managed to get out there or to chat yeah, to some people? Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty good here. Um, I think the um, the relative closeness to San Fran makes it a lot lot, um, lot easier for people to kind of travel up here. So we do get kind of people, you know, coming up from obviously, who obviously live in Silicon Valley, coming up occasionally, you know, conferences and talks tend to be um, slightly higher value than the stuff we get in Sydney. And, yeah, there's, there's quite a few interesting startups here. Um there's um, there's quite a few in the payment space, quite in interestingly, uh, a few Bitcoin ones as well. Um, so yeah, no, it's uh, and there's there seems to be quite a lot of smaller stuff as well that it doesn't seem to really happen so much in Sydney. Like in Sydney, it tends to be sort of you know bigger stuff. There's not that many sort of small independent developers, whereas here there tends to be a lot of people, you know, one or two people teams, you know, just just tra uh, just trying stuff out, seeing if it works. A bit more of the San Francisco vibe, so. How yeah, it's pretty cool. How far is uh, by plane Vancouver to the Bay Area? Uh good question. It's like four hours, maybe. I might be wrong there. Yeah, I'll quickly uh, use the. I'll crank up the Google machine. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably. I think I'm pretty sure it's closer than um, the New York is to um, to San Fran. Yeah, that's that's quite a. That's quite a um, New York to yeah the west coast to the east coast is quite a quite a trek in about six yep. hours. Yeah, that's one technology that has not changed enough. Air travel has hardly changed. You know, in forty fifty years, we need some disruptive technologies. Yeah, teleporters. Anything that works and is safe. Yeah. Um, it's a remarkably difficult thing. Google's not. Okay, it looks like it's two hours and 15 minutes there, Canada, if you go nonstop. Or 14 hours by car. Oh, well, there you go. That's a day trip. Well, I've done 10 hours in Australia by car many times, so 14 hours, you can do that two days. 
You have to do that in Australia if you want to go. True. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> um, it's although it says in current traffic, fifteen hours and forty-six minutes, so um, a little bit, a little bit longer. Yeah, it's rush hour here right now, so it would be. Um, it actually would be an interesting day trip all down the west coast. You go through Seattle, um, or you know Washington. You go through Portland and down to California. So. Yeah, it would be very nice. Yeah, we were actually went uh, via Seattle on our way uh, on our way here last time, and yeah, no, it's a really really nice spot. Yeah, we would actually like to do that coast if we have Seattle's a chance. Seattle's got real mythical um, status in my world because you know when I was at uni, the whole grunge scene was around, and uh, yep. you know, all these these massive bands, Nirvana, Soundgarden, um, you name it, were you know all out of Seattle and that whole. That, that whole grunge sensibility was just born out of there. So um, I'm intrigued to, to go visit Seattle. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, mentioned that actually. They've got this, um, this really uh, quite well-known museum. It's right next to their Space Needle, which is their big, you know, tower um, in Seattle. Um, I can't remember what the museum's called. It's like a, but it's a pop culture, science, and um, sci-fi and music uh, museum. And, yeah, they just had a big, uh, we went there, and it has a big sort of, um, display area and a big uh, uh, look at the grunge scene and how it came out of Seattle and all the various uh, bands that they're that influenced by, you know, Nirvana and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, interesting. Well, uh, and, and the, the West Coasters in the U.S. are just so friendly. They're just the nicest people in the world, some of the nicest people. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to explore more of the West Coast. Anyway... I think we should call it a podcast. That was episode 36 of the It's a Monkey podcast. You've been listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter. We are the co-founders of 89N, home of Manage Flitter. If you, a special shout-out to you if, you if you're listening to us while you're using Manage Flitter. Um, please email us, podcast at itsamonkey.com. We'll, we'll give you a shout-out. Tweet us, contact us, um, and subscribe on iTunes. We'll keep these going every two weeks for the most part. Um, thanks for listening. Have a good one.